Hello, everyone, and welcome to Here's the Plan. This is our youth-led podcast where we're working out a 10-step plan to rescue our future from the climate and biodiversity crises. I'm James Miller. And I'm Bella Lack. And although all of our episodes touch on it in some way, this week we wanted to focus on the power of activism and movement building to make change. To explore it a bit further, we had a conversation with our fellow climate campaigner, Louisa Neubauer. She's probably the most prominent climate activist in Germany and started the German Fridays for Future movement and grew it to an incredible size and influence, took her government to court and won, and has written a number of books on tackling the climate crisis. We spoke with her all about her efforts to turn off the fossil fuel tap, the best way to mobilise society to act, and how to build a strong movement of people that can create real change. We really love this interview. We're so excited to share it with you and we hope you'll love it too. What we do with every podcast is we launch into it using one icebreaker question and we wanted to ask you what the worst interview question you've ever been asked is. Oh, it's been asked many bad interview questions, I'm afraid. I think the worst one is when um, it's mostly like old journalists when they ask, why are you so apocalyptic? And everything about this question is so wrong. It implies that we are, as activists, using a metric when speaking about the world that is not scientific, but it's an ideology that we're kind of trying to ruin the mood for purpose, that we uh, don't listen to the science, but that we kind of rather make up kind of dual futures to scare people. That really drives me crazy because it's just... The implication is just so uh, problematic. Mm-hmm. I actually heard you say a really interesting thing on a podcast the other day, which is that you're asked a lot if you're an optimist or a pessimist, and you call yourself a possibilist. Yeah, exactly. And, and I really love the term. I never heard it before. Yeah, it originates from a Swedish-German philanthropist, uh, Jakob von Skur, who said that what is most important, it's not whether you're particularly optimistic or pessimistic about the future, but the question is, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And so he says... Both optimism and pessimism can be a a very passive attitude because it both means you lie back on your couch and you expect the world either to be better or worse in the the future. And for him, being a possibilist means acknowledging the possibilities that we have in the world while acknowledging that we need to make them possible, we need to make them actually happen. The doors are open towards every direction. It can be uh, disastrous, but we can also just win so much and improve life quality for people everywhere. But the question is, will we make it happen? Will we make it possible? Certainly. And I think that's something that's been common to all the people that we've interviewed here is that people seem to know what they need to do in each sector, but change is happening on all fronts too slowly. And I think what we're really keen to explore with you today is whether there were any sticking points or anything that's holding us back across all sectors when it comes to decarbonisation. I don't know if that's going to be a simple question to answer or whether the answer is quite complicated. What what do you think? Well, I think everyday life is surrounded by things that were once utopian. Our everyday life looks the way it looks because people have fought for social change. Take an eight-hour day, you know. That is something that American workers fought for 130 years ago. And today it's, uh, you know, it's normality for us, but this was once a very radical idea. Um, Same as with unions, with women's rights, with all these, even with environmental regulation. In Germany, 50 years ago, you couldn't swim in the rivers because they were so poisoned. 
And today, I think there's sometimes a bit of a mismatch when we speak of social change and of the change we need to create is that we, on the one side, acknowledge that everything that we do and the way we move and the way we live and the way we work is a result of people fighting for change. And on the one side, we kind of want to deny the possibility to change in the future. And I think also we owe it to the people who fought for our life to be the way it looks now, to now fight for the lives of future generations. That to me is a question of generational justice. And then coming to your question of, I think what stops us most or what's holding us back is on the one side, many people are um, feeling that, you know, it's just so much is going wrong. Like so much is breaking down these days. You don't even know where to start. And you feel like you have the burden of the world on your shoulders. And I think for that, it's really important to bear in mind that nobody needs to do everything, but everyone needs to do something. We need to develop a belief and a, a global trust that we are living in a kind of a ecosystem of change where we, we need to learn to rely on people that we will never meet, that do something on the other side of the world this very moment, knowing that it only works out if we also do something. And that is something in a commercialized and individualized world that is something we need to fight for, really, developing a global trust again. You used a really interesting word at the beginning, utopia. We have lots of ideas about perfectionism and about this utopian society, and people kind of hold back waiting for a perfect solution. And I think in a way, this ideal that we have of this sustainable utopia is almost impeding our progress and stopping us moving forward. Do you think that we need to latch onto solutions, even though they're not perfect yet? I know Greta has a great analogy. She said cathedral thinking, which is the idea that we lay the foundations and then the actual cathedral, we don't even know what it's going to look like. So we just start building. Do you agree with that idea or do you think we need to have this conception of a utopia? Some scientists use here as a future literacy that we're really bad in imagining different worlds. And this future literacy means that we are really good at understanding the present, but we're really stuck at imagining like different pathways we could go. And that means that everyone who defends the status quo has a huge benefit because they can rely on people understanding that status quo. And uh, people get tricked to believe that all the change that will come won't be to their benefit. So I think learning to imagine different worlds, different presents, different everyday lives, and learning to imagine what progress would actually look like is something that is crucial. I, I wrote a book about this a few years ago. We called it a crisis of imagination. We just we have such a hard time imagining people rising up for the values that they believe in, for justice and sustainability and so on. On the other side, I think you are right that we tend to also trick to like a very static image of a different world. Um, while blending out what it takes to get there. And that's, I think, the other aspect that is important here, rather than kind of focusing on a static future that is there that looks like ABC. It's crucial to learn, you know, what are the, the next steps that we need to take to get a bit closer to that. And understanding that these steps might not be glamorous and they might not be, you know, a full opportunity and they might not be visible to everyone, but it takes those steps. So learning how social change works and making it visible that, you know, we're moving somewhere really matters here. Okay, fantastic. So in that case, if you think that a large part of what we need to do is to maybe communicate things better to people in terms of trying to persuade people of, of the positivity of the future that we need to imagine and, and look at the next building block for what we need to do, do you think it's the case that at the moment the public understands the crisis to the extent that we need them to? For people who 
are focused on communications as part of their, their activism, whether that's something that we still need to work on, persuading people of, of the crisis, or, or whether it's purely on mobilizing the group that are already aware, but getting them uh, on their feet and doing something about it. Well, I think there are few reasons to think that people will be mobilized with like, crises. That is just usually like when there is a huge injustice happening, thinking of George Floyd, you know, that of course can spark a lot of large masses. But usually what we learn is that the more people learn about the crisis, the more they kind of focus on Netflix. And because you feel too small to make a difference, you feel uh, overwhelmed. So I don't think that a crisis or a catastrophe is a, like particularly good uh, motivator for anything. I think rather what we need is for people to understand that there is a crisis, yes, but also that we can fix it, but that they are needed to fix it. And I think that is where people are getting into an emotional dilemma that is really productive. It means, oh, wait, there's a crisis and we could actually get out of the crisis, but it's not working out if I'm not there. That makes me very uncomfortable. That makes my uh, ignorance very uncomfortable suddenly. And I think that is where the magic happens. And then I think we spoke about voting behavior. And I think for that, we need to acknowledge that when we speak of the climate crisis um, and we, if we want people to, you know, to change their behavior, their, their voting um, behavior, their whatever, their life, their job for the better, we are not going to come far enough with facts because after all, like moving societies towards climate justice is a huge cultural change. It means that democracies like the British one, like the German one, who have since they existed been relying on fossil fuels will be taken away, you know, one of the main pillars of existence, which is fossil fuel energy and all the fossil fuel promises that come along, but the cars, the progress, the wealth, where everything on that relies on fossil fuels. So decarbonizing democracies means changing parts of the DNA of a, of a modern democracy. And that means we speak of an identity question here. We speak of uh, emotions that are connected to our lives. For many people, you know, eating that kind of Sunday steak or saving up to buy that car, taking that plane to wherever, is a very, very emotional question telling people that this will all stop. That is painful. And I think to me, that's a, it's, it's very freeing and liberating to acknowledge we need all the facts to empower us. But to get where we need to get, we need to find emotional languages. We need to answer questions of identity and culture to get things moving and to excite people for what could be out there for them. I heard this analogy the other day and the guy said, when we were moving from using horse and carriage to using roads and cars, they didn't tax horse through, they built the infrastructure for the roads and they wrote the highway code. He was for innovation and against like taxing fossil fuels, for example, this guy. And I've noticed within the environmental movement, lots of people take these two sides. They go either we need to phase out fossil fuels or they take the side of innovation and growth. And there's this binary. And I'm wondering how we overcome the division, because I find yeah. people, we go for this same goal, but people are taking different camps and like not speaking to each other. And that's a very interesting question. I use the concept of or like the word of facility, which is basically like the patriarchy where there's a dominance of, of man, which is not just legally, but emotionally, culturally, um, societally. And then the, the concept of facility implies that there is an emotional, cultural, legal, financial dominance of fossil fuels over every alternative. 
Um, and this means if you want to build a windmill somewhere, you have to fight years of bureaucracy. If you want to open up coal mine, you know your ways. And if all the fossil fuel projects would have had to kind of justify themselves as new fossil free infrastructure just now does, we wouldn't have a problem because there is a dominance of fossil fuel projects everywhere. And so I think to counterbalance that dominance that is there, that's a, that's a question of habit, of learned politics, we need to, of course, acknowledge that we will have to make it more expensive and costly to wreck the planet, while at the same time incentivizing what's happening. And I think actually the mobility sector can give us good clues because what we have actually learned in the past 50 years when it comes to, for instance, cycling infrastructure, and I think Amsterdam has been a very good example here, the science would actually say just incentivizing alternatives doesn't do the job because the questions of habit and of convenience are just too dominant, too powerful. So while providing alternatives, like making trains cheaper, providing cycling infrastructure, getting the, the, the public buses to run, we need to make it more expensive and costly um, for people to drive in inner cities where we need to get rid of cars. That's a big lesson learned from, from Amsterdam and those places where they knew just building the cycle lane won't do it because we need to, for people to actually change their habits. And that comes along with costs. Then I think it's important when we speak of taxing fossil fuels and whatever, fossil fuels come with a price and someone will have to pay this price. So to me, it's not like it's not a strategic question, only it's a very economic calculation that someone will have to pay for the wrecking. And if it's not the fossil fuel industry who pay the price, the public will pay, and that always means the poorest pay. And that is, to me, not what climate justice should be about. On a very related note, something that, that I've noticed is that it seems to me that a lot of your personal activism has, has centred around trying to stop those fossil fuel projects that are going ahead that aren't in line with the science. And do, do you think it's fair to say that, that a lot of your personal activism does focus on that supply side of the fossil fuels rather than the demand side and reducing the use of the fossil fuels? And if so, is that a tactical decision? Is that something you do deliberately? Great observation. Um, well, it's, to be fair, we just need to look at the numbers here. We need to look at the business plans of the largest fossil fuel corporations around the world. And if they go ahead with a business plan, we can say goodbye to all our climate targets, to all the, the big promises made to, to young and future generations when it comes to climate justice. If the business plans of the large fossil fuel corporations are not being stopped, it's nice that we, you know, think about solar energy and, and cycle lanes. But we will we we cannot deal with those emissions that they're like planning to produce. I think they're sometimes like to, to me it seems like the public, but also maybe sometimes movements are being tricked into believing that we just promoted green alternatives hard enough, people will go there. But that is not the reality when we look at those business plans and what you know banks are kind of planning to finance in the future and so on. And so what we try to do here, acknowledging the the crucial moment that we're in, it's like emergency. We're trying to get into emergency mode where we say we need to stop those fossil fuel projects because we know out there, there are the people who are already planning the energy, like the, the renewable energies, and we are seeing the people who do great innovation work, which is all necessary, of course. And that is happening because people are excited for that. The nitty gritty and the kind of dirty part of that is acknowledging that someone needs to turn down the music at the fossil fuel party that these large fossil fuel companies are throwing right now. Do you think, what is your stance on engaging with versus ostracizing most of your companies? Oh, I don't think that there's a... No, I think... I'm not saying that every energy company is a villain, but what we see right now 
after 50 years of a public climate discourse, after 30 years of climate summits, after seven years of the Paris Agreement, the largest fossil fuel companies around the world, they had their time to change. They had the time to change their mode from fossil fuels to renewables. Yet what we're seeing in 2020, 98% of the profits from fossil fuel and from oil and gas companies around the world, 98% of those profits were reinvested in new fossil fuel exploitation. 2% went into renewables. That is not what a change looks like. This is not what changing the mode and turning green looks like. Just taking it from the business plans of those fossil fuel companies around the world, every single country as we know their names, they are not planning to change. They are not planning to do anything that would be in line with our Paris Agreement. We know that they are trying to get away with some greenwashing, with their like peaceful windmills spinning on their kind of advertisements, planning exploitations and expansions everywhere. And that is, to me, yes, the greenwashing works. And uh, they know their climate vocabulary right now. They've changed rhetoric and they want to be part of the better change. But their business plans speak a very different language. And to me, it's a, that's a hard one. But we need to understand these are the companies, these are the CEO, these are the business people who plan to suck the last bit of fossil fuels out of this planet, no matter the, the price tag um, for, for the people, for the planet, for everyone else. We need to um, criminalize them as they are climate criminals. We need to isolate them. And we need to make it very clear for the public that this is a conflict line. And of course, we need people to go into the institutions, into the parties, into the companies, to the churches, and do the little pretty change that are all needed. But when it comes to the largest fossil fuel corporations around the world, their business plan has no future and someone needs to tell it to them. So we just had a meeting with lots of activists and you were talking about you're doing an action at a conference in June in Paris, right? And then COP at the end of the year, yeah. everything building up to COP. From hearing you speak, you sound rightly cynical and angry at the lack of action. No, not at, not at all. I'm not cynical when it comes to fossil fuel companies because... It has been clear for years now that they are not the good ones. They are telling some offsetting fairy tales right now, saying, oh, you know, we can be climate neutral like Shell wants to be. That's bullshit. That is lying to the public. And so I'm not cynical because I think there was never a reason to trust them. And that gets more obvious every single day. What do you think we're going to see at COP? The COP is going to be a very tricky one because if you gather things together, the COP will be the place where... They build a future for the oil um, companies. The head, the president of the COP is our oil executive. And their big their big dream is to build a COP around the profit interests of oil companies. And uh, it's a technical, it's just one word that they are, they're wanting to, uh, to make famous. Because technically we know we need to phase out fossil fuels, get away from coal, oil and gas. What they want is to get away from fossil fuel emissions, which means... Great, you have your oil pipeline, you have your gas field, but the moment that you have some CCS technology, some offsetting plants, whatever, our emissions are gone, but our fossil fuel business plan can, you know, survive. And that is the, the magic word that will make the difference at COP and that we're willing to fight because we need to get away from fossil fuels. We need all the, the money and all the power that we have to go into renewables. Well, that's fascinating. That's something that I think uh, all of our listeners should keep an eye peeled for. I'm just really interested to hear what it was like for you to to build the Fridays for Future movement in Germany, how difficult that was and what impact you feel that those strikes and, and that movement in Germany has had in your country, but also the, the parallel youth climate movement all around the world. 
over the last few years? What, what impact do you think it's had? I mean, in Germany, you know, we had the Fridays for Future movement is the largest climate movement that has existed in the country. Every year we bring hundreds of thousands of people on the street. Two years ago, we sued the government over its climate in action and we won at the Constitutional Court, which is like some of the most radical court cases on the climate that exists worldwide. Um, and it's being used in many other litigation cases. We're actually seeing that you can, you know, change is possible after all, and uh, young people can lead on that. And the beautiful thing is that by now, it's not just about young people going to the streets, but it's more about society acknowledging that things need to change and that they are needed to create that change. And that means, you know, the builders have founded like Architects for Future, and we have a psychologist to find the psychologist for Future saying we need to support people in, in the mental health crisis that we're in when it comes to climate anxiety and so on. Teachers for Futures came up and say, so we need to talk about climate education and Creators for Future is an is a association of people come together to say, we're not going to work in marketing and to greenwash companies that don't want to learn and all those things. So we have not just a movement, but like an ecosystem of people and all generations and all sectors of societies to say, wait, you know what? We know what to do and we need to be the, the, the hub for the decarbonized alternative to what the mainstream does. And we've won elections with the climate, which is beautiful, meaning that it's not just, you know, everyone going about the Green Party, but it's rather than all the parties or the Democratic parties had to acknowledge if they don't have a good climate agenda, they won't be voted for, especially around our national election two years ago. We got to a point where there was a competition between the parties for the best climate solutions, which is amazing. And it's it's really tough, especially after the, the Ukraine um, was invaded by Russia we saw a lot of backlashes, you know, with new coal mines being extended and so on. So it's a constant struggle. And it's really, um, it's a tough job, to be honest. You talked about activism and change making as an ecosystem. Would you say it's a healthy ecosystem? Do you feel supported? Do you think there's a lot of momentum and it's going to be able to sustain itself? It's been in Germany that we've run the climate, the first future movement for four and a half years now. There was a pandemic between, there was a Ukraine war. It's been quite a while, and I think across all these crises, we've seen, yes, we can sustain ourselves. It's tough, and it takes a lot of people, and it takes a lot of nerve. And I don't think that it's healthy to grow up in a climate crisis for young people. I think it's not healthy for your emotional system. It's not healthy for your friendships. Activism is something that like takes way too much from us. Yet at the same time, we are in a crucial point in history. We know that until 2030, we need to have a mission globally. We need to get things done. We need to close down fossil fuel projects. We need to get polluters out of climate conferences. We need to change the money flows. We need to ramp up renewables. You know, this is a job that is, is taken right now. And for me, it's a, I'm okay with doing a bit too much for now and worrying a bit too much about these things, knowing that maybe in the future, young generation will not have to worry that much. So I think it's a, it's a good investment. And after all, I think the crisis around, they take our energy in any way, like whether we feel overwhelmed every day, tell ourselves, oh, I can't do anything about it and I'm powerless and I don't know what to do. That takes our energy too. It's not a good uh, place to be in. So I'd rather take that same energy and invest it in activism and don't have to, you know, to pretend that I can't change anything because everyone can make a difference, whether it's just small steps or big steps. Do you feel overwhelmed every day? No, because I am. Um, well, well, it's a, lot, it's a workload, but I, I think considering that every single year in the future will be a bit more of a crisis, 
I think it's a quite a good investment right now for everyone to kind of train your crisis muscle to find a mode to navigate through this crisis without ignorance, without cynicism, but with, with activism, with listening, with learning, with growing, with coming together. Not just necessary in the the, uh, the climate crisis, but it helps us, you know, I think to just navigate through an, an era of crises and to not, you know, get overwhelmed every day or, or drown in hopelessness. I totally agree. I think we've all got to find a way to sustain our activism and our ability to keep to keep doing things in a way that's not dependent on the state of the current situation, that's resilient to whatever happens and however bad things look, to know that there's always things that we can do that will that will stop things from getting worse and that it's always worth investing that that time and that effort. But something, again, given that you've been doing this for several years now, for the Fridays for Future movement, you said four and a bit years coming up now. I was wondering if there was anything in your activism that's inherently changed during that time, whether you've changed tactics or mindset or perspective in any way that was particularly profound and that, that people who are earlier on their activism could learn from. Oh, super good question. Two things. I mean, I changed a trillion things, but two things I think have really kind of stuck to me. One is when we started in 2018, we felt that the public, at least in Germany, kind of didn't want to know about the crisis. Like, They thought we had Angela Merkel, she was a climate chancellor, you know, she did all the good stuff. So people, they weren't worried to a degree that you should be worried. And so what we did in the beginning is we kind of screamed out there saying, guys, it's a crisis, wake up, you know, do something. And um, that was important to kind of wake up people and to to get them out of this kind of ignorant state where you kind of, well, like not that ignorant, I don't mean it in a negative way, but just laid back, you know, it's all good. That was important to wake people up. And I think now, however, as I mentioned earlier, I think communicating via crises has become much less effective just because the crisis out there, everyone has been through pandemics, people have are worrying about their bills, we have a cost of living crisis and so on. So I think making people in office saying, hey, I've got another crisis for you, come along, join us. You know, it's not some particularly good offer we can make right now. So I think we've changed the offer to say, you know what, there's a crisis and we offer you to not feel hopeless and powerless, but rather to be on the good side of things, to create the change, to create the world you want to live in and to be part of a community that is not willing to give up. And we know that this means we always have to be the nicer, the the more beautiful, the more aesthetic, the the more fun party um, compared to the fossil fuel living room with all its convenience and cute offers and little getaways over the weekend. That is one thing. And I think the second is that in the beginning, we um, when we started the, the movement in Germany, we told people that individual behavior like shopping lists and so on don't really matter for the bigger picture because we need to get away from fossil fuels, we need to stop the corporations, we need to get you know climate legislation and so on. So we told people, don't worry about your dinner decision, worry about your like your life decision and your activism. And our idea was that rather than investing your energy and kind of counting your plastic bags, take that energy and invest it in going to the next community meeting about decarbonizing the infrastructure in your area or whatever. And I changed my um, attitude here because after all looking back, I don't think it's good and healthy to tell people to live against their values. Many people who find out about the climate crisis and who have just a bit of a privilege, they want and can change some things in their everyday life. Cycle more, using public transport if it's available, reducing meat or even, you know, animal products. 
thinking about how I live, where I go on holiday and so on. And I think that is not something that takes energy from us after all, but I think it can even give us energy to live closer to our values and to align what we believe in a bigger picture with how we live individually. And I think it's good and productive that it makes people angry to think, wait, my individual consumption behavior changes, but this means the industry should change too. So I think that is something that I um, yeah that I changed. And uh, to me, it's liberating to understand Yes, the big impacts will happen there when people come together to find for the big changes. But for those big changes to happen, we need to start small changes. And that can actually be when we uh, look into everyday life. We're very conscious of your time that you're going to have to shoot off soon to your meeting. So we'll wrap it up. But one question that we ask everyone to, to finish off all our episodes is if you could ask for one change from governments, from businesses and from civil society. So three changes, one from each. What would they be? Okay, it's a democratic government. It means making a plan to stick to the CO2 budget until 2030, which is a crucial time, and sticking to that plan. And this would mean exciting the public for stuff that they are not excited about yet. And for businesses, I think the good businesses, please change for the better. The bad businesses, that's the demand for society. Let's hold them accountable and shut them down when necessary. And and I think for people like... Uh, you know, 2023 is going to be an exciting year. And I think if everyone stopped for a moment and thought about three moments, three days, when they would go to the street um, in the next month, three friends to call, to um, bring along, um, three meetings to look at in their local neighborhood, what's happening, to kind of go to going to a summer climate school, signing up for this course to learn more about what's going on, um, going to this local group that's been a bit weird, but kind of needs support, going to this kind of, Greener party meeting to just find out what they're doing. Um, that's a it's an investment that's uh, necessary. You're incredible, and no, really, and an inspiration. And it's really great to speak to other activists. I mean, we've had lots of intergenerational conversations, but sometimes the most reflective thing is speaking to someone with a similar fight, I think, and to see um, how you're doing it differently, how you're doing it similarly. And I could speak for hours, but we have a meeting. So thank you so much for having me. Thanks for the privilege. And uh, yeah, I'm up to, uh, to join your podcast here. And I uh, hope to, to meet again soon. Thank you very much. Louisa is incredible. You can see it in the outcomes of the work and campaigning she's done. Both you and I, James, have been campaigners, activists, whatever you want to call yourself, for quite a few years now. And I saw, as we were speaking to her, lots of parallels, but also lots of differences between Louisa's work and our work. And I wanted to ask you to begin what you think those main parallels and differences are, because I think it's interesting how activists are formed into this big monolith, but actually there's a lot of nuance and there's lots of different work within that. Yeah. So I think I don't want to turn this into a competition, but she's been far more successful than us in building a movement and I think creating real concrete change. Yeah. I think she has focused much more on movement building on creating a grassroots movement of young people all across Germany. And that's had a massive impact. I think what you and I have probably done slightly differently is that rather than being so focused on the organizing side of things, we're probably more focused on doing the kind of the communications and the storytelling side of things, mm -hmm. I would say. But then having said that, she's doing that incredible work as well alongside her organizing. 
she's incredible to listen to whenever you hear her speak she says something different she's resilient very capable in any situation but also I don't think we're going to get everyone to fulfill that kind of stereotypical activist mold and I think activism can take many different forms whether that is you know you're a chef and you focus on making a more plant-based diet or you're creating laws and you're a lawyer or you're a teacher teaching the kids about sustainable development I think those are all forms of activism which are equally as important but Louise's form is needed to kind of push the the norm or the Overton window, as some call it. And we need those people who are at the very forefront, who are speaking loudly and in a way being more demanding, louder, making people uncomfortable. We need that discomfort in order to shift the window of what is normal and what is acceptable. I think certainly. And I think this is a really interesting topic to touch on, which is the idea of different theories of change, right? what is the best way to achieve this really rapid systemic change that we need in society? Mm -hmm. I see there as being two different ways that the climate movement tends to approach this. One is is focusing on the kind of the movable middle, the mainstream group of people in the middle of the spectrum of opinions who haven't made up their minds. And a lot of people believe that we, we need to focus on that middle ground, on gently coaxing them towards higher ambition. There's another group of people that believe that we don't have to expend effort trying to convert everyone in that middle ground and that all we have to do to achieve really rapid and an extreme change is to mobilize 3.5% of a population into action. And that that comes from a political scientist at Harvard called Erica Chenoweth. And, and that was like based on studying historical protests and seeing that across all these protests throughout history, in every case, when at least that fraction, 3.5% of the population were mobilized, the movement has tended to succeed in its aims. And that's the approach that XR takes. I've heard different numbers. I've heard 3.5, I've heard 15%. But I think you need a pinnacle of hardcore activists in a way. It's a bit of a pyramid and then a larger percentage of people who are aware and who are talking about it and getting the dialogue going. And then there is always going to be a thin line of people who are in opposition but I think the more narrow that we can make that, the better. So I think we should try and cross that threshold that you talked about. But like any of the climate targets, don't stop at the threshold. Keep going until we can get as many people on board as possible. An interesting thing when the media and the and politicians are talking about activists is they'll often polarise them by describing them as the minority and kind of marginalising their claims. I found an article where Sunak referred to women protesting in Iran as displaying humbling and breathtaking courage. But when you see lots of the dialogue around activists in the UK, they're talking about the individuals, they find information about the holidays they've been on and what car they drive, and there's very little focus on the message. And I think that's important that we don't overly focus on individuals when we're talking about activism because it's a bit of a distraction technique. You're so right in that that's, that's one of the things that often a lot of the forces that seek to stall climate action exploits is um is looking for hypocrisy but it's um it's also true and it's really concerning that there's a rise in in populism at the moment around the world around U Europe and that increasingly those political movements are trying to weaponize climate action and i thought this was something that would be interesting to bring up because when we spoke to luisa we were speaking to her at a point where you know in the last few years 
the Fridays for Future movement that she leads in Germany has had huge turnouts and that that's translated into a really extreme political change in that the Green Party in Germany was one of the three main parties in the ruling coalition. You were starting to see uh, more ambitious climate policy being proposed, but the popularity of the Green Party has absolutely crashed. And one of the main factors contributing to that has been this really polarized debate about heat pumps. The populist party on, on the far right, the AFD, they've weaponized that, making arguments that, you know, it's putting an unfair economic burden on poor people, that it's stripping people of freedoms. I think it's really scary and it's going to challenge us to think very differently as a movement about how we approach these things. Another thing is that Luisa, I think, more than anyone else, has been quite influential in my views on fossil fuel companies and how we should interact with them. She gave this fantastic TED Talk. If anyone hasn't seen it, it's called Fairy Tales of the Fossil Fuel Industry. And in our conversation with her, she just laid down so much really compelling evidence that we should not give them a seat at the table. We should not treat them as, as a good actor because they've very consistently proven that they can't be treated as such and that it will only lead to a stalling of progress. Exactly. I think she said something which was ruthless, but had a clarity of vision, which is necessary for the change that we need to make. She said, referring to fossil fuel companies, we need to criminalise them as they are climate criminals. We need to isolate them and we need to make it very clear for the public that this is a conflict line. And the fossil fuel companies especially the 20 firms behind a third of all carbon emissions don't fit into the future that we're trying to construct, which is one that isn't dependent on fossil fuels. And some people say you need to be inside these institutions and engage with them to create a fair transition and make sure no one's left behind. But I think in order to have the change that we need in the timescale that we need, we need to recognise this conflict line that Louisa talks about. And that doesn't mean leaving individuals behind, it means leaving systems behind. Definitely. I mean, 98% of their profits reinvested in oil and gas, not renewables. And the fact that they're still opening new oil and gas infrastructure when the science says that we can't do that and stay below 1.5 degrees, the fact that they're still spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars every year lobbying against climate policies. I think this plays into uh, the, the concept that Louisa described of fossility, the absolute dominance of these industries in our society, their influence in the media, their influence in politics and funding politicians. We need to kick them out of institutions that they may be sponsoring, which gives this perception that they have a credible voice and, and deserve a seat at the table. We need to kick them out of research where, you know, evidence shows that they have an influence on the outcomes of research that, that leads towards extending their license to pollute. Yeah, I agree completely. When we're talking about net zero, they can allow themselves to compensate for their carbon intensive activities through this greenwashing of saying we're offsetting, distracting consumers, greenwashing again through advertising. So I think it's very easy for consumers to think actually they're making change. BP is reforesting and BP is going to become net zero emissions, which it likely never will. And Louisa talked about storytelling. And I think it's Something me and you have talked about endlessly, which is envisioning a different future so that we can move towards it. And I love it. And we'll bring up the concept at every opportunity because I think it's such a good thing for people to go away and envision a new future in order for us to make those steps. Yeah, 
But especially now in the face of that populist backlash that we spoke about, that really relies very heavily on this emotive and provocative rhetoric, we need to change our storytelling tactics. We need to tell stories about this alternative future that we need to move towards. As Louisa said, we also need to lay down the, the steps that we need to take to get there. And we need to make it emotionally compelling. We need to make it beautiful. As Louisa said, we need to be the beautiful and attractive side because at the end of the day, the vision that we're pointing towards isn't what, what these populist politicians are saying. It's not about restricting freedoms. It's not about imposing a burden on the poorest people in society. It's about cleaning our air, cleaning our water, reducing premature deaths. It's about building a more resilient society and living more in harmony with nature. It's building a future that everyone should want to move towards because it's going to come with so many co-benefits to society. I agree. I had two terms that Louisa used that I really liked. One of them was possibilist. So she said people ask her if she's hopeful and whether she's an optimist or pessimist. And she said they're both quite passive terms where you're just feeling about the future. But a possibilist is where you're imagining what's possible and then you're going to go and create that. But also, as she said, they need to be a part of that change, that the change won't happen without people like them taking part, where you put people in that position of having agency. That's the critical bit of all of this. All right, Bella, I think we've we had so much to debrief on there. There's a lot of takeaways, but now we should probably move on to the bit that's talking about how people at home can get engaged. And I think this is, again, this is a really good episode for this. So <laughs> there's probably a lot to talk about. But did you have any particular ideas? Yeah, something I've heard Louisa say, not in our interview, but she said often corporations, they paint us individual citizens as consumers in the way that you go into a supermarket and your power lies in which kind of pasta you choose or whether you choose the Nutella with palm oil or without palm oil. And she said, we need to start seeing ourselves as political beings rather than just consuming beings. That means people should transform their self-perception into people who have a say, whether that's voting or joining a movement to pour your energy into public strikes. There are probably existing movements for whatever aspect of the environmental movement you want to join. And if there aren't, you can be the one starting that and getting people to join you. And as you mentioned, and as Louisa mentioned, I think what's really exciting at the moment is the the rise of these sector or, or career-specific groups of people in these movements. You've got architects that are promoting sustainable building materials, which, as we know, are a huge source of carbon emissions. You've got lawyers. There's the group Lawyers Are Responsible in the UK that are saying that lawyers should not provide their services to promote new fossil fuel infrastructure or to prosecute peacefully protesting climate activists. You've got teachers, you've got artists, you've got musicians, you've got every group of society starting to mobilise who want to see radical change in their industries because every industry has something to contribute. And by gathering into these career-specific groups, you can push for really specific and constructive change, which is something that you can't really do as a broader movement. Yeah, and talking about energy, Louisa had this concept of doing three things, three strikes, choose three different products that you're going to consume, which are more ethical, three movements that you can support. And I think it's an important concept because we're talking about systems, we're talking about industries, it is overwhelming. And often when you make that first step, then the others will become easier. So it's about taking those first three steps, and then the other steps will probably follow. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I really, really like that. And can I just propose maybe to to wrap this bit up? I think it'd be remiss of us to do this episode and not mention the Stop Rosebank campaign that's happening in the UK and in Norway right now. There's a new oil drilling project that's been given the license to go ahead in the UK. It's called Rosebank. It would produce the emissions equivalent to 28 of the least polluting countries in the world. And this is coming at a time when the International Energy Agency and the IPCC have all said that we can't drill for new oil and gas if we want to stay below 1.5 degrees. It's totally out of line with the science. And there's a really amazing grassroots campaign to try to get this stopped. And it's called Stop Rose Bank. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And you can um, read about it and join the movement to try and get it stopped. It's probably the biggest activism movement against the fossil fuel industry in the UK right now, I'd say. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us for this episode. As always, if you've enjoyed it, we would really appreciate you sharing it, leaving a review. That way more people will find our podcast and hear what we have to say and what our incredible guests have to say. And if you would like to support us further, you can tip us the equivalent of a coffee on coffee.com. We'll have links to this and our social media all in the show notes. Next time on Here's the Plan, we're speaking to someone who's approaching the same problem as Louisa, but maybe with a slightly different angle. His name's Simon Sharp, and he's recently published a book called Five Times Faster, which absolutely blew my mind. The concept is that we need to decarbonize this decade five times faster than we have done to date. And he has some ideas as to how we can do this by making little tweaks to the way that we do economics and diplomacy that could dramatically increase the speed of action without needing any strong changes in public opinion or political ambition. It's really exciting. I think you'll learn a lot from it. And I hope you're all looking forward to it as much as we are. See you next week. Bye. Bye.